It is a great pleasure to be with you all here tonight. Very encouraging to see so many of you come out here. As we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As we do so, hear these words from John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. There we find this recording of the crucifixion. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also a tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, so they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture that divided my outer garments among them. For their clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If you were given the opportunity to travel back in time and, and be an eyewitness to any event in Scripture, I'm curious what event you would choose. I'm sure it would vary from person to person. Maybe for some of us, we would love to go back and see creation and hear the voice of God and see the beauty of that pre-fallen existence. And many of us, no doubt, would try to visit some of our favorite Old Testament stories. Perhaps the miracles of Jesus come to mind and you think how amazing it would have been to see Jesus turn water into wine, to see Jesus amaze the crowds with His authority. And no doubt, a great number of us would wish that we could go back to that event that we're going to celebrate this Sunday. How glorious it would be to have been there, to see Jesus raised from the dead, to see the joy that must have come across the disciples' face, to see that victory finally understood. I would guess, however, that not many of us, if we're honest, would choose the event we're talking about tonight. Not many of us, if we know anything about the crucifixion, would really want to go back and watch this. Because it was by all accounts horrific, violent. It was barbaric by all means. And I cannot imagine how horrific it must have been for the mother of Jesus to watch her son stripped and beaten and humiliated, mocked by the masses, and hung up to die as a public sense of shame. 
cannot imagine the amount of disappointment that must have come across the disciples. Not just that it seemed that Jesus had failed, but the disappointment of how much they had given up. To see their great leader humiliated once again, crucified, seemingly defeated by the very enemies that Jesus had so successfully argued against and outsmarted so many times. Oh, the account of the crucifixion, as we see in John 19 and the other gospel accounts, would have been horrific to watch. And yet, as horrible as it must have been to see Jesus nailed to a cross, and as much more attractive as the resurrection might sound in our minds, it is this horrific event that Jesus says you must see. It is this cross that in order to be saved, you have to look upon it. And in so doing, you have to be able to see it as more than just some torture device. We have to learn to see it in the way that Jesus intended it to be seen. And by that, we have to see it as a picture of the curse that would crush us all, and a picture of the cure that is offered purely in Jesus. To understand the beauty and the full meaning of the cross, though, we cannot simply look at John 19. But we must turn back into earlier in Jesus' earthly ministry. The words Jesus spoke to a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus, back in John 3. For as we look back to this chapter tonight, we see as horrific as the sequence of events is in John 19, it was all according to the plan of Jesus. For two years before that, he had said exactly what was going to happen. And speaking to that end, in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus offered these words. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. As we take the time to, to pause from our weekly routine, as we take the time to really prepare ourselves for the celebration that is to come, I pray that all of us tonight can perhaps for the first time really see this cross as Jesus intended. And that for those of us who have seen it in this light, we might be reminded of why it is so essential. With that being said, let me go and pray. And we'll explore this text of John 3. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father in heaven, what a, what a unique opportunity it is we have here tonight. An event that is no doubt perplexing to the majority of people in the world. For we come together tonight to look upon your crucified son. To look upon a scene that is bloody, that is violent, that is vile in our eyes. And yet we do so because we understand ultimately it is the most beautiful act of love. And we do so because we understand apart from this cross, there is no resurrection. And there is no salvation. And so God, be with us tonight as we explore the words of your Son in John 3. Cause us to see the cross with new eyes. Cause us to see the sacrifice with a greater amount of appreciation. And in so doing, cause us to be all the more prepared to truly celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. God, if there is anyone here tonight, as I'm sure there are, who has not yet put their faith in your Son, I pray they see their sin tonight. I pray they see the cure that is offered to them, and I pray they receive Christ as their Savior. For the rest of us, God, might this be an evening of contemplation, might it be ultimately an evening of encouragement 
and the evening in which your Son, who died for our sins, is glorified and praised. Jesus, it is in your name we pray these things. Amen. In order to appreciate the words of Jesus there in John 3, verses 14 through 15, we have to understand this discussion that is taking place and understand just how surprising these words of Jesus must have been. For if you look back up to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, you see this discussion is taking place between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And we know from the text that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader. And this Jewish religious leader had come to Jesus in the cover of night. We assume he does so because he's afraid of what his peers might think of him or say of him if they see he is talking to this controversial figure. But Nicodemus is clearly so troubled by what he has seen and what he has heard from Jesus that he has to approach him. And he comes to him to ask him there at the beginning of chapter 3, in essence, Jesus, I know you couldn't do what you're doing unless you were connected to God. So please tell me how you are connected. Please tell me who exactly it is you are. In other words, Nicodemus, like the Pharisees, understood from the words and actions of Jesus that he was presenting himself as a prophet of old. He was presenting himself as being a part of that story from the Old Testament, and he was trying to figure out where in the story Jesus fit. In response to this genuine question, Jesus turns the tables on him a bit. And instead of telling him exactly who he is from the outset, Jesus instead answers in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As Jesus says these simple words, he again is, is turning the tables on Nicodemus. And instead of allowing Nicodemus to put this discussion in his own terminology, to, to put Jesus on the stand in essence, he puts Nicodemus now on that stand. And he's trying to show Nicodemus whether or not he, Nicodemus, is actually connected to God. Whether or not he, Nicodemus, is actually in the kingdom that he is no doubt so confident that he's a member of. As Jesus continues to explore this theme of the kingdom of God, he says statement after statement that was truly troubling to Nicodemus. For instead of speaking of the law getting Nicodemus into the kingdom, instead of speaking of your own self-righteousness getting you into the kingdom, Jesus speaks of the necessity of being born again. Language that is commonplace for many Christians in our culture today, but language that was utterly strange to Nicodemus. Nicodemus understands how strange it is, for he picks up on this terminology and he says, matter-of-factly, how how can man be born when he's old? Nicodemus quickly understands. Jesus is saying you have to do something you can't do. Jesus affirms that. And as the text continues to lay out, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you're right. You can't do this. It is only an act of God that can accomplish this in an individual. It is only by the Spirit of God that a person can be born again. Therefore, it is only by a direct act of God that you can actually enter into the kingdom. Nicodemus, no doubt troubled by this statement again, responds in verse 9 and says, How can these things be, Jesus? And if you're Nicodemus, you have to understand how confusing this must be. For these Pharisees no doubt assumed that they were a part of the kingdom. And they had to be. They had the law. They were obedient. They looked righteous compared to everyone else. And now this Jesus was saying, no, no, no. No, that's not enough. You need something more and you need something given to you. 
In response to Nicodemus' question and confusion, Jesus continues to speak of the fact that Nicodemus needs something more, even more than that, he needs someone more. Someone better than any prophet, someone better than any Pharisee certainly, someone better than anything the Jews had ever seen. What he needed, and what we all need, is that which Jesus says again in verse 14. For there, speaking to his own identity and speaking to the way we enter into the kingdom, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The entrance into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is comparable to a serpent that was once raised in the wilderness. You all get that, right? You immediately understand what Jesus is saying? No, we don't. Because at first glance, this honestly seems like a bit of nonsense. And what is this serpent that Jesus speaks of? And how on earth is Jesus anything like a serpent lifted up in the wilderness? Well, to answer that question and to see really how Jesus ultimately embodies and fulfills this language, we have to understand the reference that Jesus is making here. It's a reference to a story that most of us don't really study a whole lot because it's a pretty brief passage in the Old Testament. It's found back in Numbers chapter 21, and you don't necessarily need to turn back there. I encourage you to read it later. It will take you but a moment, for it's just nine verses. Nine verses in Numbers 21. And in this story, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They're headed towards the promised land, towards that kingdom that they envision. And as they travel in the desert region, they do what they do so often. They grumble. They complain. They sin against God. And in response to their sin, we read in Numbers chapter 21, verse 6, that the Lord sent fiery serpents amongst the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. We thank God for the fact this is not how he responds to our sins today, daily. But it's a way he responded to this sin here. He sends serpents, an animal that is not just scary because it can bite us and kill us, but a creature that carried with it great weight in the Old Testament, didn't it? For the serpent itself was a picture of that serpent in the Garden of Eden. That serpent which deceived Adam and Eve. The serpent was a picture of man's fallen condition. And here, that picture of man's fallen condition was amongst them bringing about death and pain. In response to that death and pain, the people understandably cry out to God and they, they ask God to deliver them from this curse. In response to that, God agrees, but he gives them deliverance in the strangest of ways. And this is what Jesus is referencing. For Numbers 21, verse 8, we read that the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. That's it. That's the story. And it's such a strange story, and yet in the story, again, as I mentioned, you see both this picture of, of a curse and a cure. The curse is quite easy to spot. For as we mentioned, the curse is embodied by that serpent. The living serpent would have brought that echo back from the Garden of Eden. That serpent, which brought about death and pain, 
was then used to be this picture of the curse that sat over all of Israel. And so in order for them to be saved, the first step was for Moses to make this metal snake, to set it up on a staff so that if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to be healed, you had to set your sight upon that image which represented death. You had to set your sight upon that image which is hideous. Upon that image that reminds you that your suffering, your death, is a result of your own sin. As they looked upon that snake then, they were forced to see their own curse. They were given a powerful, visible reminder of why there is so much suffering in the world. It's not because they're enemies. It's not because of rough terrain. It's because of them. In that serpent, in that wilderness, there is then first and foremost this picture of the curse. The question, of course, is, well, how does Jesus embody that then? In what way does Jesus ultimately fulfill the same sort of imagery? Well, of course, we already saw how Jesus fulfilled this imagery. For while Nicodemus could not understand what Jesus was speaking of there in John chapter 3, when we get to John 19, we see the fulfillment of exactly what Jesus promised. We see that just as that serpent was lifted up on a staff in the wilderness, so too was the Son of God nailed to a cross and lifted up to be mocked, to be humiliated, to be publicly executed. Comes a ball rolling down, sorry about that. (laughs) And to the Jewish person watching this event, the language of Numbers 21 certainly would ring true, for the image of a person on a cross was an image again that was the embodiment of a curse. We know that from the writings of Paul. For Paul, the apostle, wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Thus, when we look upon Jesus on the cross, we are not just looking at at an ugly picture, picture of torture. We do not simply see an example of other people's unrighteousness. A picture of how awful those Jewish leaders were. A picture of how brutal the Roman Empire was. No, we see a picture of our own hideous sin. And as we look upon that cross then, in the same way that as those Israelites looked upon the snake, we are confronted with the ugliness of our own wickedness. We are reminded that our sin isn't just an occasional mistake we make. Our sin is not, hey, everyone messes up sometimes. Our sin is death. It is shameful. It is wicked. And our sin means we deserve to be nailed to that cross. More than that, our sin means we deserve to burn in hell. And this is how serious sin is. At this moment... If that is all you know of the cross, it is tempting to look away immediately, is it not? And yet as hideous as that reminder is, as horrifying as it is to see the embodiment of your own wickedness, Jesus reminds us that this cross is also our cure. For we see that second element again back in Numbers, don't we? For as surprising as it was, God says it is the result of looking upon that serpent 
that those who are bitten will live. In other words, as the Israelites looked upon that serpent in faith, not faith in the serpent, of course, but faith in God, as they looked upon that serpent, trusting the promises of God, God said, you will be saved. The punishment is lifted. And sure enough, as the Israelites who were willing gazed upon that hideous snake in faith, they were rescued. They were saved in that moment. You you flash forward to the New Testament then. And you read these words of Jesus once more in John chapter 3. For there again he says, it's not just a matter of the Son of Man being lifted up. No, in order to be saved, in order to enter into that kingdom, he says, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The point being here, that just as we must gaze upon the cross as a means to be confronted with our own sin, so too must we gaze upon the cross believing. Having faith in the fact that that man on the cross is not some criminal. It's the perfect Son of God. And that Son of God hanging on the cross is hanging on the cross in your place, in my place. And so as we gaze upon Jesus in that hideous torture scene, we gaze upon Him believing that He is enough. That this sacrifice is enough. That God's plan, as insane as it sounds to us, is in fact the wisest, most beautiful plan ever revealed. And we gaze upon Jesus in faith with that confession that acknowledges we bring nothing to the table for our salvation. We simply, as J.C. Ryle once said, lay hold of our Savior's hand, receive our physician's medicine, understanding that our faith gives nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing, and only takes and embraces that glorious gift that Christ bestows to us and the gift that Christ bestows to us while hanging on a cross for our sin. It is a beautiful picture, ultimately, then. But it requires that you see it. It requires that you acknowledge it more than just some passing image as a, as a picture of love, as a picture of sacrifice, but that you see it as your sin. That you contemplate your sin. That you acknowledge that apart from that crucifixion, apart from that body being broken, that blood being spilled, we are all doomed to hell. And so as we consider this, and here in a moment we'll have an opportunity to take communion, my encouragement to you all is the question, have you really seen this cross? Have you set your gaze upon that suffering servant? Have you seen Jesus in all of His pain and seen your sin there? And have you looked upon that crucifixion believing that it's enough to pay the penalty for your sin? There are undoubtedly some of you here tonight who have never seen the cross like that. You may have seen pictures of it. You may have heard it taught in Sunday school. Heard your parents refer to it. But you've never really looked upon it as your own sin. You've never professed faith 
in that crucified and ultimately risen Savior. And so as you sit here tonight, I pray that you understand the offer of life is given to you, but that life comes only through death. That purity comes only through the spilt blood of Christ. And so unbelievers, profess your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin and receive the life that is given to you by Jesus Christ's death, burial, and ultimately as we will celebrate on Sunday resurrection. For our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we consider this evening and as we look ahead to Sunday, we are given this unique opportunity tonight to really contemplate that price, that price of our salvation, the price of Jesus Christ's life. I pray that we do not take that lightly. I pray that we have not grown callous and grown so accustomed to this image that the violence has somehow missed us, that the beauty is somehow lost on us. And so as to help us think upon these things here in a moment after I pray, Jeff's going to come forward and just begin to play music, and you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ are welcome to come forward and, and take the elements. For communion is a physical reminder of that sacrifice of Christ. For as we eat of the cracker, we remember that body nailed to a cross. As we drink that juice, we remember the blood spilled on our behalf. Now oftentimes, as we take communion as the chapel, we invite you to come and get back to your seat and take it as you please. But tonight we're doing something a bit different. Tonight we take it together as one body. And so as you come forward and take the cracker and take the juice, we ask you, believer, to get back to your seat and just take a few minutes to think upon your sin, to confess sin to God that needs to be confessed, to praise Christ for the fact that He covers your sin. And after you are given a few minutes to contemplate that, I'll come back forward and walk us through that time. But again, I ask that you wait for that so that we can take advantage of this unique night and celebrate, ultimately, the crucifixion of our Savior as one unified body. With that being said, let me pray as Jeff comes up. Father in heaven, we are entirely undeserving of any ounce of grace we are given. God, it is so easy to overlook our sin, to excuse our sin, to speak of ourselves as if we are somehow more deserving of your love that we are somehow so much greater, so much more special than all those other filthy people in the world that surround us. Yet as we come here tonight and as we read this text, we're reminded that we are all equally sinful. We are reminded here tonight that each one of our sins is worthy of death, is worthy of your judgment. And so we come together tonight once again to be humbled by that fact. But in our humility, to look upon your Son, Jesus Christ, nailed to a cross, suffering on our behalf, taking the wrath that we deserve, and in so doing, offering us the only cure. And so, God, as we continue on our time this evening, Lord, I pray, as always, for those who have of us here who have not yet known you, God, I pray for their salvation. Bring them to a saving faith in you now, God. 
cause them to see their sin, cause them to see their need for the first time, cause them to cry out to Jesus. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this time of communion be a blessed time of remembrance, a time of contemplation, and ultimately a time of incredible gratitude for your sacrifice, for Jesus Christ's perfect obedience. Jesus, be honored as we honor you. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen.